Hello and welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. This is the podcast all about growth startups. I'm James Pringle. I'm a technology entrepreneur, investor and VC at Portfolio Ventures. My co-host is Hector Mason. Hector is a partner at B2B Investor Episode 1 Ventures. This podcast is all about uncovering what it takes to build a unicorn business. We speak to some of the best founders and investors, many from unicorn companies, and ask them about their journey, operational insight, tips, lessons, stories, and anything that can help uncover what it takes to build a high-growth business. This week's episode is with Magnus Carnum, principal at Left Lane Capital. Left Lane Capital is a leading global venture firm investing in high-growth internet and consumer companies. They back businesses like GoStudent, Wayflyer, and Masterworks. In this episode, we cover what it's like being a consumer investor versus B2B investing, the importance of LTV cat ratios, and which consumer sectors they have not made an investment in, but maybe will do one day. This is a great episode with one of Europe's most up-and-coming VCs, so let's get started. Hi Magnus, welcome to the Riding Unicorns podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, James and Hector. No, it's great to have you on. So, Magnus, maybe we could just start by getting sort of a bit of a background on your career and like how you got into VC. Absolutely. So, I'm born and bred in Munich, Germany. Started my career working in different investing and startup roles. Always been fascinated by fast growth and technology. However, I was curious about a lot of things early on in my career and as you know, strategy consultancies are great at exploiting young people's curious minds. And so I joined McKinsey in their Zurich office for a couple of years to ultimately come back to that passion for startups and investing. And the intersection of that obviously was venture capital. So I joined a London-based venture firm in their London offices called DN Capital, focusing on consumer investing across Europe. Spent a lot of my time sourcing in the Dach region specifically was fortunate to get a lot of trust from the team early on. So I was on the board of companies like Mr. Specs or Home to Go, which are now public companies in Berlin, sourced a few investments, including in Go Student. And actually, Go Student ended up being the first investment from Leftland Fund One. So I observed three of the investment team members actually from Leftland that I met at the board of Go Student. And that brought me ultimately a seat at the Leftland table, which is what I've been doing for the last few years. That's awesome. And I, I want to touch back on the Go Student stuff, because obviously we've got that connection there with Felix having been on the podcast a little while back. It was a great episode. I, I wonder, so how, how would you summarize your time at McKinsey? And we've had a few guests who've been at McKinsey actually as well. And so, yeah, just keen to hear like how you would summarize your time there and, and whether there are any, any lessons that you sort of learned that you feel are pretty relevant to what you do today. So I think what I did with my time at McKinsey was really to try and learn as much as possible in a short amount of time. And I think McKinsey is great at giving young people a lot of responsibility. And so what I did is I essentially was able to dive into nine different industries across seven different countries, anywhere from a small kingdom in South Africa all the way to a growth strategy study for a chemicals company in China, all the way to helping a big German car manufacturer build up an incubator. And most of these were three-month-long projects where you would get a lot of responsibility, speak to a lot of senior people, and get up to speed on an industry very quickly, both by speaking to internal, but also by speaking to external experts. And I think 
a lot of what I did back at McKinsey now in venture sort of enables me to get smart on a new space very quickly. And I think it's the same passion and the same curiosity that drives a lot of my success in the venture space. That's quite interesting. It's the first time I've thought about this like common thread of curiosity being at, at, like the foundation of a lot of VCs personalities, I guess, because what you've described as a consultant and the sort of curiosity that you required there is sort of similar to like the curiosity that journalists need. And there are plenty of journalists who are now VCs. And I think like it does come up over and over again. Like, I think VCs certainly like to think of themselves as curious individuals. And I think most of the time they actually are. So it's just, yeah, it's interesting to hear that that time as a consultant at McKinsey boils down to sort of, you know, feeding your curiosity. And at the same time being paid for it, right? I think it's a, it's a huge privilege to work with founders, but at the same time to learn something new every day, be on the phone to like five, six, seven founders every day. And ultimately founders are people that are the most passionate you can be about a space, right? Because you're dedicating your professional life to something. And to be speaking to these founders, to learn about new spaces, but then ultimately to work with founders to further their mission is something that I think we as, or the three of us, right, as venture investors are incredibly privileged with and, and we never take it for granted. Yeah, 100%. With no founders, there's no VC. So I uh, absolutely agree with that. Hector and I do quite a little bit of B2B investing, but at Left Lane, you guys look more on the consumer side. So what is it about consumer businesses that, gets you excited? What's it like sort of, you know, investing in the future brands of tomorrow? So I think we invest predominantly in consumer internet companies. And what do we mean by that? It's companies that are tech enabled, technology first, that touch the lives of the everyday consumer, also prosumers and SMBs. And ultimately, what we're so excited about in the consumer internet space is that the markets that the consumer internet space touches are just 10x, 100x bigger than enterprise IT spend. If you look at venture investing over the past 20 years, enterprise software has sort of been made out as this one amazing asset class, which it frankly is because you have amazing retention, you have amazing margins, but it's an asset class that's very well understood. And so what you see typically in the space is that there is a wide variety of VCs either specializing in enterprise software or going the generalist route. And the team that runs Left Lane early on in their career specialized on this consumer internet opportunity because it saw that through the advent of the app store and through the advent of recurring habits of a consumer being shifted online, there are more and more resilient business models created that ultimately supported long-term relationships, long-term digital relationships with consumers. And so what we find for these types of companies that these have real resilience, real repeat behavior on the consumer side, but at the same time can deliver products with high margin, but in opposition to enterprise IT, you're able to go to market a lot faster. And that means you're able to grow a lot faster because you turn every dollar that much quicker through digital customer acquisition, as opposed to having to hire a full sales team, which needs time ramping up. And then has all the delaying effects in that. That's really fascinating. I cannot wait to hear what Hector's next question is. <laughs> oh, wow. High expectations. No, but I mean, I think, so I haven't thought about this that deeply, but I have thought about it a little bit. And I think every B2B company at the end of the day is just serving companies who ultimately serve consumers. So I think like the consumer is always the ultimate customer. 
true in some ways. If you look at a Microsoft, it's like, is this a consumer company or is it a B2B company? I think the boundaries are definitely blurry for many companies, but ultimately the way we look at it is in in a company's go-to-market, do you see a company signing up their customers within, let's say, sub-60 days, in which case you get a high initial return on your dollar? Or is it more like, you know, a six-month period where you need to have various different decision makers involved, in which case it will be more considered enterprise for us. Do, do you guys think of consumer investing as being like a sort of exaggerated version of the power law? You could. So I guess where you're going with this is you're saying that the power law means you only really hit returns in venture if you hit a winner. Yeah, exactly. So I mean, so yeah, it's well understood that there's a power law in VC, right? And, and you, the majority of the returns, as you say, are delivered by like a very small number of companies. And that's true in B2B. But I wonder if in B2C it's even more exaggerated where like actually it's such a tiny number of companies that deliver like a huge majority of the returns. You know, you're thinking about Facebook. I mean, I know they monetize from business, but these sorts of companies. And so the the importance of investing in one of those people on the fat end of the power law in in B2C is even more important. So I guess, I mean, you know, how... Maybe that manifests is like a greater distribution of returns in B2C focused funds. I think that's certainly been historically true. I think the one nuance there that I would mention is what we try to do is we try to find resilient consumer businesses, consumer businesses that aren't just as good as their last month of sales, but that have real long-term relationships with consumers. And so even if there is a hurdle on customer acquisition for a few months because of whatever idiosyncrasy they might be, you will still have a resilient business that can live from previous month cohorts. And therefore, even in a base case or downside scenario, will still ultimately yield us money. Whereas sort of the true zero one investing, which many people understand consumer investing to be, is probably not as much for us. Of course, we hope that by picking the right companies, there will be quite a few of these outlier companies in there. But we try to have a relatively relatively moderate approach to underwriting so that even in a scenario where a company cannot continue to inflect new ads into the infinite, um, it will be a good outcome for everybody involved. Following on from this discussion, it'd be good to hear a bit more about some of the companies that you've you've led and think about, you know, what what did you see in those companies? Was it market trends that you're investing on the back of? Was it, I mean, obviously it's a mixture, but the founder, their execution, like what, what are the key things that you're looking for in a consumer investment? So I think I'll start with a company called Masterworks, which is an investment that I sourced in a, in a company in New York. Masterworks helps retail investors like you and I get exposure to blue chip art, right? By owning a piece of a Banksy or a Warhol. And blue chip art historically has been an asset class. It has really been for the top 1%, if not even 0.0.1%, really for the elite. Because if you wanted to get access to this asset class in the space where this has historically appreciated by 14% per annum, you needed to spend two, three, four, five million dollars to acquire a piece of an art. And what Masterworks has done is they have fractionalized the ownership into this asset class by 
in, in many senses, IPOA, the yard on the stock exchange. And ultimately, what made me so passionate about this company is becoming a consumer myself. I had found this company by just brute force sourcing companies that had fast growing similar web growth, right? There is a few sort of data sources that we tap for finding interesting companies. But this company sort of had me intrigued from the get-go because I'm typically not an early adopter. I don't consider myself an early adopter of consumer trends, but I was like, wow, if through this asset class, I can get exposure to the, the type of investment I wanted to do for a long time, then this must probably be relevant for thousands of other people as well. So then it out, I ended up reaching out to the founder. He said he didn't want to speak because the next round he was going to raise was $400 million. And obviously our fund was too small at the time, was $630 million, but it still stayed consistent, looped in the rest of the partnership. Ultimately, we ended up front running that process and were able to, to invest um, or to lead this $100 million Series A. And the company has continued to, to be a great investment. And it was also... Frankly, it's so fun to be working with the founders here, given the area. And I guess ultimately it was still sort of like a fundraising process that was managed, but because we were running at it, because we were canceling sort of our holidays over August, we were able to get in front of everybody else and like put in the first term sheet, built that report with the founder and ultimately convincing him of working with us. Yeah, it's an awesome company. It's one of those ones that's got the nice balance of, you know, people who knew about it early feeling quite like cult-like, like they know about it. But then also it's kind of relevant to everyone to some extent. And I'm sure more and more people are thinking about alternative assets whilst a lot of the other traditional assets are not doing maybe so well. So it's really interesting timing as well on that business. The switching tack a little bit, I think sometimes early stage founders are challenged with sort of expectations around their LTV CAC ratios at quite early stages. And often the truly scalable businesses will have things like network effects and things like that, you know, as part of their model. And so it's not always clear from an early point whether they've got the LTV cap right or how what that could end up looking like. Sometimes investors have to take a bit of a risk on that and believe that future product releases, network effects, etc., will tip that balance. What's your view? And especially on earlier stages, I don't know how early you guys go, but like when you're looking at a business, how much of it is just pure art and how much is pure science in terms of looking at the numbers and the, and the long-term vision? I think ultimately it is very hard to turn off whatever gut feel you have about a deal, right? And then ultimately you're back solving from that with data. And so if there is a strong gut feel that ultimately network effects um, will have a strong effect on the business. And you're just in the initial phases of getting it going. But you can spot initial signs of, let's say, clusters, maybe certain cities, and we can disaggregate the P&L loss or the top line revenues into clusters that have higher density. If we can find proof points on, of that, that we believe you can extrapolate to a broader sample size, right. then yes, we're absolutely fine to sort of make an exception from the rule for the CAC potentially. That said, we do like to say discipline and sort of invest in these companies that have certain type of resilience where you can lean into customer acquisition post-transaction, right? Because when, when we invest in that, it's typically sort of at Series A, Series B stage. That is sort of where our sweet spot is. And at these stages, it's always an inflection point where 
the next five, 10, 20 million dollars on the bank account, or sometimes even 50 million dollars on the bank account, you're gonna double, triple, quadruple your new ads. And that ultimately always leads to CACs increasing, right? Or at least is what we've historically seen. And we want the company to be to have found digital ways to address their their consumers or their customers that are scalable. And we want them to continue to innovate on, on, on ways that they could find their customers. But we ultimately not big friends of putting more money into a machine that's not yet working, right? We're not the types of partners to entrepreneurs that say, you just need to grow whatever it costs, right? If something breaks, we'd rather say, look, why don't we go back to square one, figure out what's, what's working, build products, to refine go-to-market motion, maybe bringing in a new go-to-market leader to then hit the gas again. Because ultimately, I think we've seen over the past 24 months, a few instances where companies have put on the brakes a bit too late with regards to their go-to-market spend to then ultimately not be able to raise that next round and then ultimately put lots of, yeah, put their company at risk um, in simple terms. And you talked about reverse engineering gut feel, which I think is an interesting way of looking at it because I think that sort of is how it works. You sort of have a gut feel on a first meeting and then you sort of try to talk yourself out of it for a while by looking at the data and then hopefully you find actually that the, the data is supportive of your gut feel, not necessarily hopefully, but those ones that, that are you then follow through with. But what, what is, what's the investment process at Left Lane? Like how does it work sort of end to end? So I think what's exciting is because of our specialization on the consumer internet opportunity, we diligence companies a tiny bit different maybe to other venture firms. We pull the raw data, sometimes engagement level and transaction level, and we mirror it back to the founders in terms of building us engagement session and transaction retention cross-cutting that sometimes with survey inputs and we actually train every single investment professional on our team on big data query tools like SQL or Alteryx. And so by doing that, we're finding these resilient companies that have long-lasting customer relationships. And at the same time, even though we say no most of the time, we find that we get good feedback in the market because other investors don't tend to actually share back their work to founders. And we also sometimes uncover ways to look at the business for founders that they maybe have previously not appreciated. So maybe sometimes we're able to educate founders on something that they weren't previously aware of, be that teleconversion, meaning, you know, and maybe you have a freemium model and there is customers that you acquire, but it takes some time for them to actually convert to paid. And many more concepts, which because of our specialization on the consumer internet opportunity, we maybe appreciate a tiny bit more than other investors. I definitely think there'll be a lot of consumer founders who will be listening to this thinking this is brilliant. So uh, it's really, really interesting. Which consumer sectors have you looked at, maybe not made an investment in yet, but that you think are ready for a bit of tech or innovation? What's on the horizon for 2023? Yeah. So James, look, I mean, what we really do is we look at the biggest buckets of consumer spend. We look at a typical consumer that maybe has three, 4,000 worth of spend in any given month. What does that consumer spend his money on? Be that education, be that food, be that insurance, be that finance. And so we map each of these spaces and try to have full coverage of each of these market opportunities by 
speaking to a ton of founders every every week and every month. At the same time, I think going into 2023, where I'm sure you've also been in slash recently, I think the market sentiment is, and we might touch on that later, is it's maybe not the best. We look for companies that can do decently both in an up in a in a bear market and in a up market, right? And so we're looking for companies that have a real ROI in the customer that maybe even save consumers money. Actually, recently did a deal in a company that saves every American household about five, six hundred dollars a year worth of taxes that they overpaid on. And it's companies like these that through digital relationships are able to serve consumers in a up market and a down market. But it doesn't even need to be so tactical, right, with regards to to whatever will work in the next like 12 to 18 months. I think what's just important is that founders also have the right mindset, right, with regards to when is the right time to invest everything in growth and when is the right time to invest in in profitability. And I think um, another investment that I've done um, about 12 months ago is actually a good example for a company that has shown good resilience throughout times, a company called WeTravel. WeTravel operates and is a, is a payment platform for tour operators, which are typically small businesses with anywhere from five to 15 employees that collect money for them via an online payment form. But ultimately, WeTravel has also built a, an end-to-end verticalized software for you to manage all the payment flows and for you to, as a tour operator, to move money in between you and whoever else on the ground is performing the service. And what we travel obviously needed to do when COVID hit was to become incredibly efficient, right? They sort of downsized their team. I don't want to say right size because they wouldn't have had to do that otherwise. But what we see now sort of 12 months after the investment is that this has instilled an incredible culture in the company to spend money on high ROI activities. And the company is continuing to perform incredibly well, growing multiple year over year and also versus pre-COVID levels, but not, not really burning money because that culture has been instilled. And so I think we're looking for founders that ultimately have understood that 2022 is a different market environment than 2021 in any of these categories that we just talked about. And I think WeTravel is a good example for a company that has maybe that has maybe developed that spirit a bit earlier on than than some other tech companies may have. I think there's an interesting conversation around that because it's sort of like that there's a signal in founder maturity and sort of ability to make hard decisions that are good and, and right for the business. And at early stage, pre-seed and seed where we invest, it can be harder to see those because there are often fewer because the companies are just getting going and there haven't been like very obvious, huge challenges, difficult decisions to make. Uh, whereas at later stage, like there's just been more years for there to have been stuff go wrong. So I wonder, I mean, can, can you think of any other examples of where like founders making very difficult decisions or teams making very difficult decisions have kind of helped you build conviction in, in the team and the company? So I think... Our company I want to hit on here is actually GoStudent. GoStudent has been figuring out their business model for three years before they hit it home. It started out as a WhatsApp chat for for children, and they have garnered incredible traction with it. I think they had a million users or so through the WhatsApp chat. But they early on realized that it is 
or not early on, but eventually realized that it's actually not easy to sell much to children because children are not the ones that have the money. But ultimately realized that they needed to get into a high spend category selling to parents because parents were ultimately the ones that if you wanted to have real monetization in the education technology category, you would need to interact with the parents. And so they sort of pivoted their model, but they stayed true to their mission of creating the number one global school. But they realized that in order to achieve that mission, they needed to twist their business model. And to see these two founders being so obsessed with the ultimate mission, which was to create the number one global school, but being so thoughtful around continuing to refine the business model day after day to then ultimately create this managed marketplace, which was very novel in B2C that made it possible to have these transactions online over a prolonged period of time, uh, gave me an incredible amount of comfort to invest in this company because they had already shown pre-COVID that this model was working. And then obviously at the onset of COVID, which is the time where sort of like the, the term sheet was signed, it, it, it became increasingly clear that, that this model was going to work tremendously well. You've, you've answered my next question with that because it was going to be about Go Student and their, their journey. So James, I mean, do you want to take the next question? Yeah, I was going to ask around Left Lane and the growth as a firm as well, yourselves. Founded in 2019 by Harley, Harley Miller. You've built a pretty good brand in VC in quite a short period of time. So I wondered what, what you felt was sort of the, the driver for that brand development. I think it's an interesting point that you mentioned because we're definitely a young firm, right? $2 billion in, in assets under management. At the same time, of course, the team that's, that runs Left Lane has sort of a long tenure of investing previous to that, focusing on exactly the same thing, right? And so ultimately, Left Lane is a, is, is a continuation of that in many ways. And I think what worked well in the initial stages of Left Lane was to actually not announce anything. When I first heard of Left Lane doing the deal in, in, in Go Student, which we ultimately co-invested in at the end, I had no idea who they, who they were. But obviously, once we appreciated who the people behind it were, we were very impressed and sort of super eager to, to partner with them. And I think ultimately, there was a lot of humility in the early innings of Left Lane, where initially the team, and then when I joined, I think, including me, just explaining our story, explaining our vision to everybody that we met, founders, operators, VCs, I think helped, helped build rapport in the ecosystem. I think having a give back first approach around, we try to make every interaction with us somewhat productive. We're sending around deals that are out of scope for us because of sort of our narrow focus and to other VCs, we are trying to play back the learnings for founders, even if we don't invest. So I think the sort of humble approach around trying to provide value in every interaction resonated well. And then ultimately, we announced Fund 2 when it was a little bit more established of a, of, of a fund and a reputation because we felt, frankly, like nobody wanted to see at the time, you know, four dudes raising a venture fund. But ultimately, I think because we had done the groundwork around explaining our story, explaining our mission to folks, it ultimately resonated well, which is why we're now, I think, more open to speak to, to media and actually are sort of 
starting to to reap a few of the rewards of I think what ultimately is a very you know down to earth team that just you know tries to speak to a lot of founders and do the best that we can do for our portfolio. Super interesting, and and I mean. You've talked about the curiosity being being something that that's perhaps inherent in VCs, but I wonder what what else do you look for in people that you hire at, at Left Lane? I know I think you're quite a small team for a for a big fund, but you know as the team does grow, what are you looking for? Yeah, Heck, it's such a good question, and frankly, I mean, I have had more interviews at this point of time than than I would wish because ultimately, I think our selling point to people that want to become investors with left lane is a strong one, but it is one every single person we bring in our team should have the potential to ultimately be a partner at our firm. And so we look for people that have both the intellectual horsepower to sort of analyze a deal and do it from the bottom up with big data analysis, et cetera, but at the same time have the compassion to understand what, a, what an entrepreneur's problems are and can sort of like talk to them on a level view and ultimately can build a report with a founder that the founder will pick you over somebody else. And I think it is that mix of people that are very out there and sort of like to talk to people, but at the same time can analyze data. And then big data, I think, is, is a rare combination, sort of more the salesy side plus the analytical side, which we always try to find in one investor. And so that is... Not always an easy find, which is why we're taking a lot of time with, with every hire we do. But when we issue a employment contract offer, we do it with conviction. And then we dedicate a lot of time to bring up these people and to educate them to become the best investor versions of themselves. And that includes rigorous training for them to actually rebuild every single memo that we've done for our investment so far before we send them out and give them a lot of responsibility and talking to founders and trying to provide value out there in the field. I think it's, it's, it's interesting hiring in VC because it, there's, there's something that works for and against VCs in that it's such a tight-knit community. Everyone knows everyone or can by, by probably like one degree of separation. And, and so like there's this opportunity for VCs basically to hire from network. And yet that's clearly the wrong thing for diversity and all these things that lots of VCs say at least that they stand for so how do you balance that conflict where to find these kind of profiles like it makes sense to go to network because you've seen people over a long period of time and yet you want to you want to hire people who you know are not cut from the same cloth necessarily it's a very difficult task to master i think as you as you mentioned i think ultimately we're both very open to inbound applications and then sort of do sift through them and at the same time, of course, have a close network of people that we talk with, share your flow with, et cetera. Ultimately, diversity is, is a very important point in when we bring on people to our team. And I think if you look at our, our investor bench, I think we've, we've, we've done a decent job at that. Albeit, you know, you can always do an even better job at it. And I think ultimately it comes down to having a broad funnel rather than to not be, I guess, closed to certain, certain areas or walks of life. Like I've interviewed people from sales as well as I've interviewed people from investment banking or consulting or directly from startups or directly out of uni, right? And I think we give everybody a sort of a fair shot. And I think we also pride ourselves in being able to actually 
get people up to speed as long as they bring. I think what I mentioned, the intellectual curiosity and like the, the intellectual horsepower to it. I think as long as these three things are fulfilled, we're very happy to bring any, anybody up to speed at Lifeline. I think it's like VCs should be really good at hiring because it's the same skill set as we use to pick companies. And so it's, it's just interesting to see how the various different funds go about it. True. Looping things back to the actual investments that you're making. I mean, what's the, what's the latest investment that you've done? And, and perhaps you could tell our listeners why you're excited about it. So we recently invest in a company, which is a credit cards company out of New York. And they have an incredible distribution wedge by partnering with large real estate agents that have thousands or hundreds of thousands of renters on their platform. They are allowing end consumers to collect points on their rent payments. And obviously rent payments are the largest spend categories you could collect points on. So it's incredible to acquire customers at a very low CAC. And ultimately, they have then partnered with some of the most attractive groups to build a loyalty program that, you know, in, in our view, is, 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 is just outstanding. And despite the company being quite early in terms of when they have gone to market, which was, you know, last year, they have built an incredible roast of partners and gotten to incredible traction, which is why we've led a fairly big Series A into that company at a unicorn valuation. And the company is ultimately likely going to expand into the UK. And so I'm very happy to be one of their first users when they come to the UK. That's amazing. So, so these rounds are still happening. Unicorn valuation Series A, that's amazing. To hear. But I think it's, it's, it's often true that like there are companies that have been tried before and are great ideas, but didn't have the right early distribution. Um, and, and it often comes down to that is that it's the coming together of so many different factors when building a startup and you can be so close and yet so far. That company sounds amazing. I love the, just the concept and yes, go to market is so clever. I love that. Magnus, as you know, we like to end our podcast with our dinner party guest game. So if you used to have dinner with any three people, it could be absolutely anyone, who would they be for you? So I've been thinking about this and... I would probably want somebody that is more of a host, like a Tim Ferriss, like a jack of all trades, somebody that has tried himself in, in, in almost everything and has probably succeeded in almost everything. And that is a very energetic moderator for any group. I would also like to invite Banksy because frankly, if you have Banksy at your dinner party, I think everybody else will show up as well. And frankly, I've been a huge admirer of, of, of his art for the last 10, 15 years and it was one of the reasons why I was so excited about, about Masterworks because where can you get exposure to that trend? And I think he also hits on a lot of the political themes that, that other people maybe don't, don't mention enough. And thirdly, I would like to bring on Barack Obama. Maybe a bit of a political one, but ultimately I admire him for being sort of the well-rounded personality he is, fist-bumping janitors, being a great father, great husband to the outside, being... Or having been for, for quite some time, so the, the most powerful person in the world. But then ultimately, you know, once out of, out of office, uh, you know, going kite surfing with Richard Branson. So I'm sure there would be quite a fun dinner party that maybe one day or another we could bring together. Awesome. Great, great guess. I think a couple of originals in there. I don't think we've had Tim Ferriss or Banksy before. So that's, that's awesome. A couple of points there. 
Well, Magnus, thank you so much for coming on and telling us your riding unicorn story. There's loads in there for founders and VCs. Congrats with everything with Left Lane. Yeah, we look forward to seeing more deals announced in 2023. James, Hector, it's been a pleasure. That's it for this week. Thanks very much for listening. To stay up to date with the latest episodes, please follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We also have a newsletter called Reading Unicorns, which is another great way to get every episode direct to your inbox. Please tell your friends about it and engage with us on social media. And we'll see you on the next episode.